Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1. If you want to follow along with the Pew Bibles in front of you, it's on page 680. That's Nehemiah, chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah. In the month of Kaslev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some of the other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are in the furthest horizons, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was a cupbearer to the king. Thanks, Ellen. Hey, everyone. Happy New Year. It's great to see all of your mostly smiling faces. Intermittently smiling faces. Um, we're going to start a new series starting today in the book of Nehemiah called Flourishing in the Midst of Opposition, partly because we just spent a whole year doing a New Testament book, and so we're going to spend a little bit of time in the Old Testament. I, I love preaching through Ephesians, but I really like preaching through parts of the Bible that people are less familiar with. And a lot of people have no idea that there was a book called Nehemiah. They don't know where it is in their Bible. They don't know what it's about. They don't know why we would do a series on it. Um, if you've been in church for a while and you hear that um, there's going to be a series on Nehemiah, usually what that means is there's going to be a big financial building campaign that you're going to be asked to give a lot of money to. Um, or for some reason, you're at like a, a leadership seminar. Those are really the only two times people tend to talk about the book of Nehemiah. So I want to I tell you that we are not doing a leadership seminar. I'm just, I'm just kidding. We're not doing a building campaign either. Um, so there's, um, there's a couple reasons why I think um, looking at this book when we're not doing either of those two things is really important. Uh, one is that we should know the content of the book and how much the book points to Jesus. Um, Nehemiah is put forward as a man of incredible integrity that brings renewal and salvation in the midst of incredible opposition and everything that can be seen in Nehemiah as somebody God uses to be a kind of savior, Jesus is in spades. And so by appreciating what it took for Nehemiah, taking out of our mind for a second that Jesus is God and looking at the drama of what it takes to really bring renewal in the midst of opposition and to appreciate what that really takes and then to realize that Jesus is that a hundredfold for you will hopefully increase your appreciation of what it means that Jesus has saved you and cares about you and wants you to flourish in the midst of the oppositions of your life, right? The second thing is, is that um, the principles by which God helps his people overcome the oppositions of their life and flourish themselves and actually become partners and allies with other people in flourishing are all the same. They've, none of them have ever changed. And so the, the principles that you can see in the midst of Nehemiah's faith and integrity are the exact same principles that God invites us to use and commands us to use for us to flourish in the midst of opposition in our own lives. Secondly, the whole book is about a people together, actually God's people together, trusting God together to flourish together. 
And so in that sense, it's also a book that teaches us, the church, how we're supposed to flourish together, right? And then thirdly, it's about rebuilding the flourishing of a people, of a society. Nehemiah, a lot of people know that he goes back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, but he does—we'll find out in the next several weeks that he does a lot more than that. He really rebuilds a whole society from the ground up that's been completely destroyed. And I think that there's a bunch of principles in Nehemiah that help us understand how in every society, every generation needs renewers. There is no society that fundamentally sustains itself. Within its institutions, there have to be people who know how to cause flourishing, even in the midst of all kinds of oppositions. And that's the only way a group of people can enjoy prosperity together. And I don't, I don't mean that just in the financial sense. I just mean in flourishing and in harmony and in humility and in life that cherishes what's really good in God's creation. A life of, well, a life of, of beauty, goodness, and truth together. What the Bible calls holiness or godliness. Does that make sense? Okay, now, there's a couple of things I want you to know about the book of Nehemiah before we dive in. I'm not going to do a big historical survey. We'll do—we're going to hit a lot of historical facts as we go along through the weeks, but there's a couple things you might want to know when we start. The first is, Nehemiah is the last Old Testament narrative. There's two sets of narratives in the Old Testament. Genesis to the end of 2 Kings, and then the beginning of 1 Chronicles to the end of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is the end of—after Nehemiah, there's a little starry night in Bethlehem where Jesus is born. Okay, that's— the next thing that happens. So um, the, the time period is from 536 BC to 431. If you look down a little bit, Ezra and Nehemiah is, functions as one book. So actually in, in the Jewish Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah is one book. And so Ezra starts with the return of the exiles to rebuild the temple and the altar, right? And it ends with the rebuilding of the wall and the repopulation of Jerusalem. That whole rebuilding of the society happens during that time period. Now, there's a little bit of a dispute as to the exact time period because there's a lot of guessing going on. There are some people who actually believe that all the stuff that happens from the, ret the first return to the end of Nehemiah is all happening at the same time. It, part of the issue is what the, what the name Ash King Ashuerus means. So the word—that sounds like a pretty, like, distinct name. Like, why would you name a bunch of kings Ashuerus? But— but it's, it really just means um, king of justice. So like what king doesn't want to name themselves that, right? And, and actually there are a number of Persian kings that named themselves Ashuerus in one context or another. So when the, the book is dated by the 20th year of King Ashuerus, there's a possibility that three different kings could be, could be being referred to. And so it's hard to know exactly how everything's happening, but the, the way most Bible scholars look at it is that it's about this period. The first people come back in 536, but Ezra and Nehemiah don't really get there. Nehemiah doesn't come on the scene until um, 445. To, this is his time period. Does that make sense? And so he's the last of like three waves, just so you know that. Um, the reason why they're returning in the first place is because they used to have a kingdom that God gave them, but they disobeyed God for about 500 years, give or take a millennia, you know? And God basically completely destroyed their country and sent them all into exile as a punishment to give the land rest and to, to get them to finally get over idolatry, right? And then he brings them back after 70 years to rebuild, but the rebuilding doesn't go very well because even though they've kind of gotten over idolatry, they haven't gotten over really any of their other sins. <laughs> and that becomes a problem, right? And they really don't until— Jesus comes and talks to them about it, right? And then it's kind of an interesting book because it's the only book in the Bible that is written kind of as a memoir. It, um, it's in the first person for most of the chapters. Nehemiah talks about his feelings, what he did, how he responded to it. There's very few—there's no other books in the Bible quite like this. And so it's a little bit different than anything else you'll see in the Bible. All right, great. Let's keep going. Okay, so the, the lesson or the spiritual truth that we need to take from the whole book— you could word something like this. That true flourishing always depends on somebody overcoming opposition. True flourishing always depends on somebody overcoming opposition. Now, there's all kinds of flourishing that you and I experience that are not because we overcame something, right? There's—it's um, fairly normal in America with our, um, with our military culture to say, you know, all of your freedom was purchased by the blood of other people, which is true, right? Um, most of your prosperity was purchased by other people. Like, you didn't build the railroads, you know what I'm saying? Like, th there was a lot of people that attacked President Obama when he was like, you know, you have that, that business, you didn't build that. And that was—he shouldn't have said it like that, because that's not true, right? People who own businesses who work, you know, 87-hour weeks or whatever, they, they take exception to when you tell them they didn't build that business. But we actually didn't lay in the internet cable. 
You didn't lay the internet cables, and we didn't build the railroads, and we didn't dig out the swamps of South Carolina. A lot of the things that produce wealth for generations are laid down at extreme cost of people in generations that come before us. And in America, it was of all races. It was, it was from p- people who were enslaved to people who came and were paid nothing to the Irish, Irish immigrants whose lives were thrown away at the docks of the southern ports where, where cotton was being sent out because they, their lives were cheaper to throw away than slaves. I mean, like, there's a horrible pain in the history of America, in every part of the country, among almost every group of people, of people whose lives were spent to produce a generation of wealth that would come after them for generations and generations and generations. And the lifestyle that you live, and the hospitals that you can go to, and the houses that you dwell in. I mean, who here built their house with their bare hands and tools? See what I'm getting at? Most of what we enjoy, and not only that, but what we culturally enjoy, just being raised by parents rather than wolves, Right? It's like, it's a, it's a cultural heritage. It's an enormous asset of overcoming that has been purchased through many generations of men and women that has produced something called culture that your parents and society inculcate in you, which is basically all of the accumulated knowledge of humanity throughout all of our existence. And you just get it. Most of us are like pissy and annoyed about it as teenagers when people are trying to teach it to us. But it's an enormous achievement that is an overcoming of all kinds of difficulties that we don't know anything about. Right? And so in order for anybody to achieve flourishing or to experience flourishing, somebody has to overcome something. Now, if you're a Christian, you, you, you know where this is ultimately going. Ultimately, all of our spiritual flourishing finds its way back to the triumph of Jesus in the cross. He is the one who is the great overcomer for all of what we receive from God. Right? But it's important to recognize that There are some things in which Jesus does on our behalf where he overcomes and we don't have to. There are situations like that. For example, your justification, your right standing before God. There's really nothing you can do to add to that or do with it. It just is a sheer gift that Jesus has accomplished for you and all you can do is receive it by believing in him. That's it, right? However, in overcoming the opposition of your life— towards the flourishing of your life and the life of others, you—that's not a situation where mainly Jesus is overcoming, so you don't have to. In the—in dealing with the opposition in our life and actually growing into the kind of beauty and flourishing that God wants for our lives, that's one of the situations in which we have to become overcomers like Jesus. It's very important to have that clear in your head. There are some things Jesus does for us so we don't have to. Overcoming— and facing suffering, that's not, that's not one of them. Do you understand? And so y- you and I have to actually realize that it's Jesus' intention to make us overcomers in the opposition of our life so that we can actually embrace and experience the flourishing meant for us. And also through it, every way in which we flourish should not be parasitic on other people. Every way we flourish produces value and life and love for everyone so that in every way we flourish, it always produces remainder flourishing for other people or it's not godly flourishing. Do you understand? It's important to recognize that. There's no way in which you will flourish in God's will that isn't going to produce some kind of additional flourishing for your neighbor and some kind of glory for God. Okay? Now, um, one of the things that we have to recognize as people— if we're going to really flourish, is to understand that we live in a world in which nothing is won without overcoming opposition and obstacles. We live in a world that is under the curse. We are people who are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. We deal with the flesh or auto-act desires that shouldn't be there and external oppressions that we can't control, right? In some ways, we like to think that we're more like animals than trees, but one of the things I like about trees and plants is that they just don't get to pick where they're planted. They don't get to pick what climate. They don't get to pick where. They don't get to decide, and I don't know if they're mad about it, you know, but they don't—they just have to grow. They're where they are, and either they grow or they die, right? And we're a lot more like that than we want to think. And so, um, one thing I love about seeing trees over the course of my life in different places is just like how different trees have been shaped by their environment and how they have still survived and thrived. 
So for example, there's a number of places where trees are growing up in the wind, and you can just tell the entire shape of their bodies is shaped by the wind that they have been blown down by. And they haven't just grown straight. That's not how it works. I have a tree in my house. It's like in the middle of Madison. The whole tree grows slanted one way because of the prevailing winds at my house. It can't actually act as though the wind isn't there, but it can be not overcome and destroyed by it, right? This tree has found a way to thrive, even though it has had to overcome an enormous amount of opposition that's actually deformed it and hurt it and twisted it, and yet it thrives, right? That's a great picture of one, too, in Scotland. And then there's—it's not just the external oppressions, but there's actually stuff that gets inside of you, right? So like, you've got all these—there's all these insects that attack trees. And so it's like—it's not just opposition from the outside. There's actually things inside of you that are—they want to eat you away from the inside. This is my metaphor for sin, right? Like, there's what Scripture calls the flesh. And a lot of the opposition—in fact, you might argue in some ways, the main opposition Scripture is telling us we're going to face is inside of us, right? And then— in addition to that, one of the things to recognize is that it's not just—it's not just an oppressor that is always causing what we have to overcome. Sometimes it's plenty, right? Like, sometimes things are too good, and we're not prepared, and we don't have the character to deal with decadence. And so, like, there's some trees that, like, the environment is so good, and there's so much sunlight, and there's so much nutrients, that actually st- other stuff grows up and smothers and kills them, like vines. Which is actually—do you, do you notice this from the Bible? This is right out of Mark, right? The third seed in the parable of the sower is stuff that's growing up, but other weeds and stuff, brambles, grow up and choke it so that it's not fruitful, right? And this same metaphor, actually literally the metaphor of the tree, is used in relationship to Jesus as a tree that is planted, that everything stands against it, and yet it, he, this, this tree that is growing up overcomes and is fruitful. So in Isaiah 53, it says, He grew up like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So there's, the picture is like one of these trees that grows up out of a rock or out of the dirt. And it's like this little tree with a little bit of green that you would just walk by if you were on a hike and you wouldn't care about. Right? Isaiah's saying that's what Jesus is like. Jesus grew up out of such hard soil to be so beautiful that he's like one of those trees, right? And in the, in the earlier in Isaiah, he says, a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse, from the roots, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. Now listen, it is true that when you cut down trees in your yard, they're growing there and you don't want them there. They'll like send a shoot out from the stump and start growing. But this metaphor takes it a little bit farther. Not only is there this big tree that's been cut off, and a shoot has grown out the side of it. But that shoot has actually grown up and become a fruit tree that's actually produced its own apples, or its own fruit. That basically never happens. You type that one into Google and see if you can find it. Shoot growing out of stump, bearing fruit. You're not going to find that one. You'll find shoot growing out of stump. That's not a problem. Shoot growing out of stump, bearing fruit. All I could find was one little picture of this tree that had been cut off and had grown one apple. It was like a little shoot that had grown one apple. That's not the picture here. This is like an abundance of fruit, right? Because no one, no one has overcome more than Jesus to become a tree that accepted where it was planted, knowing that it couldn't change the full circumstances of it, knew what it was there to do, was cut off, and yet still grew into fruitfulness. No one has ever overcome opposition to flourishing like Jesus. And that is one of the ways he wants to make us like him. He wants to make you the kind of person that no matter what the obstacles or oppressions or difficulties or struggles or sicknesses or discouragements that come into your life, that you are prepared and ready to be the kind of tree that doesn't spend its time hating the soil that it was planted in, but that grows up and overcomes its opposition to fruitfulness and flourishing. Does that make sense? Okay, now in chapter 1, this is going to be a number of principles we're going to look at throughout the book of Nehemiah, but in chapter 1, the main one is that overcoming starts with sharing God's longing for flourishing. It starts with sharing God's longings. You have, that's absolutely fundamental, and there's a reason why it's in the first chapter of, the, of this book. 
That's where all of this comes from. It is the true fountainhead of overcoming. Having the right kinds of integrity and passion. So you can see this in the first verse. In the first verses that um, when, when Nehemiah really starts thinking about why it's such a bad thing that Jerusalem is destroyed and that Judah is a complete mess, and he prays to God, he recognizes very distinctly that this, this sorrow that he's suffering, this mourning that fills his heart, this passion that he has inside of him is completely connected to God's passion. What God thinks, what God has said, and what God wants. Now listen, that is not the same thing as caring about God. Caring about what God wants is not the same thing as caring about God. Because you can be like, I care about God. I, I know he has a wonderful plan for my life, and he wants my life to go fantastic. And I care about God. Okay, that's not the same thing as caring about what God wants, right? It's kind of like, can you, like imagine a movie where this girl is dating some guy— and she finally has that date where he's talking about all his comings and goings and all the stuff he wants and how she's going to be a part of all his stuff. And she realizes he doesn't care about anything she wants. Right? And she's like, this guy doesn't know what I want to do with my life. He doesn't know any of my longings. He doesn't know what kind of job I want to do. Like, he just doesn't care about any of that. He just wants me to be in his life. And she dumps him in that climactic scene, right? Before she meets the handsome guy unloading the truck two blocks down. Right, by some serendipitous occurrence. You know what I mean? But you know what I'm talking about? Like that, that, a lot of us date God like that. You know what I'm saying? We're like, yeah, God, I want you to be part of my stuff and be at my thing and be at my blah, blah, blah. And come watch my games and, you know, like wear my, my, my letter jacket. And like we, want, it's like we want God to be like our high school girlfriend when we're on our most self-involved stage. You know what I mean? And that's just not what's happening with Nehemiah. That, that does not create an overcomer. That does not, that's not— that's not biblical faith. That's not the sort of person to whom God looks. That's not the sort of person who overcomes anything. That's the kind of person that whenever anything happens, they blame God. Right? And when Nehemiah talks, he says, God, everything I'm interested in is what you're interested in. And so he says, they are your servants and your people who you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attended to the prayer of this, your servant. Even his reference to himself is, I'm your servant. And, that, and the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today in granting him favor in the presence of this man. This man, this man is just the king of the largest empire in the world. Right? So the king of the largest empire in the world is a throwaway line in relationship to his devotion to not just God, but God's will and God's passions. Because, and the reason for this is that if your passion for what you believe must be isn't that deep, it won't make it. It's just not going to make it in overcoming the larger obstacles of your life. In fact, the moments where you don't want to follow God into some opposition is the moment where you realize how big your faith in God's will is. Because it's when you get to a point where like some, there's some kind of opposition, you don't want to trust God in it. What you're learning about yourself, which can be very helpful, is, okay, so my faith in God's will is less than this. Whatever difficulty this is, my faith in God is less than that. Because when I face it, it doesn't rise to the occasion. The breaker wall of my opposition is not overcome with the wave of my trust and faith in God. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay, so how do we do, how do we do that? The first is, <clears throat> you have to share God's burdens with a heart that's, that's wide enough to transcend your direct experience. You could say it like this. No one ever overcomes what they can't see beyond. That's the, that's the like pithy way to say it. Nobody overcomes what they can't see beyond. Your, your heart or your, the passion that you're sharing with God, your heart has to be wider than your direct sense experience or what's going on in your life. Otherwise, you can't ever overcome anything because you'll be focused on the thing that's going on right in front of you. Right? So here's an example of this. It says in verses 1 to 3, While I was in the citadel of Susa, those who survived the exile are back and the provinces are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. So think about this for a second. The first way that he describes himself, at the very, the very last verse of the chapter, he says he's cupbearer to the king. And the very first 
verse he speaks about himself. He says he's in the citadel of Susa. Okay, the citadel of Susa is only mentioned in either two or three books. It's mentioned a bunch of times in Nehemiah and a bunch of times in Esther. Because Esther becomes queen to the king of Persia during this time period. So this is the same palace that Esther lived in. This is actually the summer palace for the king. And um, it's, it's the palace that is also the citadel, which is outside of the more arid land of Elam, which is the far eastern part of the Persian Empire. And it's right on this river. It's very beautiful, and it's also a fort. And it is the, literally the summer palace of the king. So it's where you go during the best time of year. You have the least amount of official business. You have the most parties, right? His job is basically to bring wine to the king. That's his job. So you could call that like a cushy job of high prominence, right? And he lives in one of the—it wasn't a wonder of the ancient world because it was just the summer palace, but everybody likes the summer palace better. Do you understand? This book will not really touch you if you don't realize that was Nehemiah's life. Okay, that's Nehemiah's life. He is cupbearer to the king himself in the greatest empire the ancient world has ever known. And as when we read chapter 2, we're going to read that both the king and queen talk to him like a friend. Do you understand? When they say, oh, it's like, in chapter 2, like the, the king is talking to him, and the queen is sitting, it says in parentheses, the queen is sitting right beside him, and they say to him, well, when will you be back, and how long are you going to be gone? Like he's one of their best friends. Because he is always around when they're enjoying themselves, right? He's in this beautiful place in this great palace, completely secure in the citadel, which is a fort in one of the gardens of Elam, right? That's where he lives. Judah is 600 miles away, man. It's 600 miles away. Why does he care? Why does he care? His life is going great. (laughs) He has his dream job. Why would he care? And why would he take it upon himself to do anything about a burned city that deserved what it got and that God's going to rebuild on his own time? He doesn't need Nehemiah. He can find somebody else to rebuild it. Nehemiah's got an important job. He's a counselor to the king of Persia. He should probably keep his important position rather than give it up and like move stones in some burned down city that nobody even lives in. Right? But you understand, Nehemiah's entire heart, his entire character, his entire personality was bound up in the longings of God and what God had spoken and shown about his plan for the redemption of all people and that the rebuilding of Jerusalem was the center of that, not this empire. God cared about everybody in the Persian Empire. They're all image bearers. They're all his, right? They all matter. But in the movement of how salvation was going to come to the earth, through God's chosen people, at its proper time, through God's Messiah, out of Zion, that is Judah and Jerusalem, that all had to happen. And Nehemiah would rather be part of that, the strain and movement of God's will in the creation of redemption and the coming of the Messiah and everything God would do to redeem all people. And he realized that was where the action is. And he said that when he was in the capital of the empire. The action is in that burned down city and I have to be there. And God, you have to do something about it. You see, if you and I, if you and I cannot get past our immediate experience, what we see in front of our faces, we're never, ever, ever, ever going to do anything that's in the burden of God. And we're never going to do anything that really overcomes the real oppositions of our life. And we're never going to do anything beautiful enough to create flourishing, not just for ourselves, but for other people. Do you understand? Why do you, why do you think the people we send out as missionaries go? Do you think that they're sick of Starbucks? You think that they don't like fast internet? Or like pe- their families? Like, I mean, I, I can't think of any missionary I've sent where they're just like, you know what, I think I want to go to Tibet because, gosh, I hate my mom. That's just not what they say. That may be what some of them think, right? But that's not what they say. What happens is, over time, God creates a burden in them for something else 
that is so worthwhile that they're ready to burn to ashes some of the things they really like in their immediate sense experience because they want something more. And only somebody who wants that something more, who can look beyond what they're experiencing in their life that they like and really want something else, something that God wants, can actually overcome anything truly difficult, especially the more sacrifice that it involves. Right? Okay. The second thing is that overcoming starts with sharing God's longing for our flourishing with a heart wide enough to transcend our experience. And the second thing is deep enough to become a permanent burden. So we've got to be able to look past ourselves. Nehemiah had to see something that was 600 miles away, past what was happening in his immediate life, right? But also it's got to go deep enough in us that it actually produces something that people used to call a burden. Now, I've, burden is um, ambiguous, right? A burden can be something that is on you, that you wish you could get off, that's terrible, and that is hindering you, right? But the way Christians used to talk about a burden for something, or so, sometimes we still colloquially say it, is basically like something that, in terms of my ease, I would never have picked for myself. But because of what I believe is true, because of what I believe is good, and because of what I believe is beautiful— because of what we believe God is showing and telling us, right? It is a wound that I've received that I don't want to be cured of, right? It's, it's something that is going to wreck my life as I know it because I so want something else to happen that hasn't happened yet. Something that's so important, something that needs to be overcome, some flourishing that has to be created, and it's going to cost me way more than I want to pay. But it's in me so deep and it's in me on the basis of truth and goodness and beauty. And there's no way I could ever get rid of it without destroying myself. And I don't want to be healed of it until it happens. That is what people used to call a burden. Burden. And we cannot be the sort of people who overcome opposition unto flourishing until the things that God wants to put in us, the things that God cares about, his longings, are in us deep enough that it creates something like this that we would call a burden. And, I mean, think about what, um, think about what Isaiah, what Isaiah, Nehemiah said happened to him when he heard the news. He said, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down. Not meaning I wanted to take a load off. Meaning that he was so struck by it, he had to find a place to sit down. Right? And I wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven, meaning for days he did this, while he was weeping and mourning. And then I prayed. And then I prayed that God would make me able and ready to talk to the king. Right? I mean, just let me ask you this. When was the last time that happened to you about anything? You heard some kind of news. You found out that something was true. You felt like you needed to sit down. Your immediate reaction was to, to, was to weep. Weep means cry a lot, right? Usually there's body shaking involved, right? And to mourn for days such that you refuse to eat and you just pray. And you pray, and you pray, and you pray. Or if you're a secular person, you're here just listening. Maybe you don't pray, but you just—you you refuse to eat. You just are so moved by what happened, you couldn't possibly get on with your life. Right? Now, for most people, if that's ever happened, it was because one of your parents died or one of your children died. That's basically the only time that ever happens to people, especially in cultures like ours. Do you understand? Um, the, stu the stuff just doesn't go deep enough. Things just don't get at our core and shake us to the ground. And yet, when, when Nehemiah heard about this, about what the city 600 miles away looked like, and people who he had never met, and weren't, wasn't related to, and was not economically bound up with, and people who could do nothing for him, how they were living, that is how he reacted. Nobody his family had died. He didn't lose his job. Nothing happened to his bank account. Nothing happened to his health. 
He didn't find out he had cancer. He found out that some people who he had never met 600 miles away were living in disgrace and fear. But because he had a passion and a longing that God had so deep in him that when he heard that, it destroyed him. Now, here's one important question. Do you even want to be like that? Do you, you even want to feel that deeply? Because if you feel that deeply, then you can be hurt that deeply. You know what I mean? You can have, you can end up with a burden that's that heavy. Most people don't want that. Most people want to keep their choices and travel light and be as emotionally closed off as possible. Right? One of the things that I'm, so I'm 42, I'm like Gen X-ish, and I kind of exist between a number of generations. Like I was, I'm old enough to have known the builder generation pretty well. And um, I also know some of these, the younger generations pretty well. And I'm in like one of these lost generations in the middle. And one of the things I have noticed in my life is the emergence of the frequency of sarcasm and the change in the types of sarcasm used by people naturally. There's a lot more sarcasm, first of all. And it tends to be less of the sincere kind. So, because there's multiple kinds of sarcasm. One is the kind that actually is getting at something deep and true and revealing a longing by speaking the negation of it, right? That's very rarely used. Most of the time, it's an expression of sophistication that you are detached from something and superior to it, and you think the thing is ridiculous. That's how it's normally used. Um, in the builder generation, that was considered immoral because you were making light of things that mattered. This is wrong, right? And, and as time has gone on, we've seen more and more and more of this sarcasm. And one of the, when I was younger, I really thought that it was a mark of sophistication. Things that like dumb, bumpkin-y kind of people took very seriously. I, I knew better than that, and I knew other dynamics, and I understood things deeper. And so, you know, part of my sophistication was recognizing the silliness of some of these thoughts, and it made me feel fantastic in my own personal vanity. And then, as I got a little older, I began to wonder if it really wasn't just a defense mechanism for not being sincere, because I didn't have the emotional capacity to be sincere and I didn't have very deep emotions, and that this is how I related and coped with the fact that I was emotionally shallow and stunted, right? I think one of the questions that, that we have to think about is, um, in, in the culture that we particularly live in, is does our frequency and type of sarcasm indicate a growth in our sophistication, or really an expression of the fact that we're hurt? and we don't want to feel super deeply, and we don't want to engage with people in really deep sincerity, and we don't want to have a divinely given burden weighing on our hearts and minds, and we don't want to be that open to other people's lives, and we just—we don't want to be open to being hurt by criticism of people who we deeply love about things that are actually true about us, and we just don't—we don't want to live in that space at all. We just want to watch TV and look at videos of people doing stupid stuff or setting things on fire, and we want to be pleased, and we want to eat stuff, and we want to hook up, and we want people to say our political views are exactly right, even though clearly life is more complicated than any of these positions, and so on. Like, that's what we want. Just please me, and let me be emotionally shallow, but just enjoy a little emotional froth on the top so I feel alive. But I don't want to be deep enough to be burdened, right? What I want to tell you is human beings are made in God's image, and we are made to have the emotional capacity to be burdened, to be hurt, to be angered, to be frustrated. We are meant to have passion real passion that is actually powerful, that really moves us and other people, and that is productive. And the reason we need that passion is we need passion that is stronger than our enemies, and we need passion that is larger than our obstacles, and we need passion that can outlast anything. And that doesn't just come from a theoretical conviction about a truth. It comes from loving that truth and delighting in that truth's beauty and delighting in the God of whom that describes. So that 
we grow deeper and deeper and stronger and more courageous and more focused and clearer and more burdened so that we're, we're willing to rebuild a city if necessary. We don't care. We got nothing to lose. And we would rather lose everything than lose our heart that can feel what God feels and can be burdened with what he can be burdened with. And we would rather not eat for days and pray and mourn and weep and be thought less of than to not be that person. Right? Okay, we got to keep moving here. There's, there's a couple of things that Nehemiah does. And I think that those are some of the things that people need to do to have this kind of depth. One of the things that's important to recognize is that Nehemiah doesn't become this person when he hears this news. He's already this person, so this news does this to him. Do you understand? We already start this book with a fully formed Nehemiah. You need to realize that. If you look at this guy and you're like, I'm just not like that guy. Listen, we get this guy spiritually fully formed. Don't think you've got to be Nehemiah today. Nehemiah and the greater Nehemiah, Jesus the Christ, is the goal right? That we're proceeding towards through faith, through the gifts of God and his aid, through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, through faith and repentance and taking the next step. As we say sometimes at High Point, failing in the right direction, right? So there's, there's four things you see here. One is to think, try to think God's thoughts with him. When, when Nehemiah starts talking, he starts talking theologically, he says, God, I know this is what you've said. This is what you're thinking. This is what you've revealed. This is how you deal with this. This is how you're relating to it. This is how—you see that? He's thinking with God at the middle. He's thinking about how God would think about it, and he realizes that, that that's how he should think about it. And that's one of the first endeavors. You have to start thinking like God rather than just thinking like how whatever pops into your head, right? The second is, is that he professes it out loud. Right? The things that you believe, you should confess and profess. It's one of the reasons why for literally almost a couple thousand years, when you would come to church almost every Sunday morning, what would you recite together? Who, who used to be Lutheran or Catholic or something like that? What do you—every every week? The creed, right? The creed. Why? Why would you do it? Just because—is it because—well, one, you memorize some doctrine. That's good. You learn something. There's something we all do together. Everybody's the same. But it's, it also does the human heart right— to say out loud what it believes consistently. That's one of the reasons why you are supposed to pray. And it's one of the reasons why you're supposed to pray things that are silly, right? Because like if you tell God what you believe, but he already knows it, right? That's why prayer sort of always feels silly from a philosophical perspective. You're like, well, everything I'm going to say, God already knows. Yes, he does. And he told you to say it anyway, right? Part of it is you're supposed to profess to him what you believe is true about him so that you're agreed on it but so that your heart can hear you say it too. And you can profess out of your mouth the positive things that you know is true so that you can be aligned with the God you're praying to, right? You profess, right? But then you also do what Nehemiah does here, which is confess. You got to admit you're wrong. You got to admit you don't have it right. You got to admit you weren't thinking God's thoughts when you were acting over here. You've got to realize that there's a whole history of this that even goes back generations in your family. He's like, we, I acted wickedly and my father acted wickedly. Don't, don't assume his father was a bad guy. His father's probably like him. But he's willing to say, I realize that like there's all kinds of stuff screwing me up. All kinds of ways I'm not, I want to be, I'm not interested in saying I'm a fantastic person. What I'm interested in is being more aligned with you, God. That's what I'm interested in. That's all I care about. I don't care about like, am I four degrees more aligned than that guy? That's, that doesn't matter. What matters is, God, I'm going to confess everything I know that's wrong with me because, partly because I know you don't care about that in terms of drawing away from me. What you want is for me to admit it so you can align me a little bit more with you. And all that matters is to be more aligned with you so I can share your heart and longings, so I can get past my immediate sense experience, so it can go deeper in me, so I can be burdened with your burdens, and so that I can be made the sort of person who can overcome stuff. Does that make sense? Okay. You can see this in, the, in James. Look at that verse later. So I'm out of time, so I only want to go through nine applications, okay? So we're going to do these kind of fast. I'm going to try to do it in about two and a half minutes. Okay, one. Will you be only a recipient or also someone who overcomes opposition 
to promote the flourishing of others, right? Like I said, someone has to overcome for flourishing. You and I have been the recipients of all kinds of flourishing in our lives because of the work of others. Are you only going to be the recipient of that? Or are you going to decide that in God's power and through his direction and longings, you're going to be the kind of person who wins over opposition to provide flourishing for yourself and others, right? That's a, it's a fundamental question we have to ask. The second is, celebrity and qualification is not the means of renewal. Burdened integrity is. So listen, Nehemiah was the cup bearer to the king, okay? That means, here's his qualifications. He can pick up a cup from one place, and he can take it to a whole other place and put it down. That's not even blue collar, guys. I mean, that is like, you, you can't get a job at a convenience store saying that's your work history, okay? You'd be like, can you run a cash register? Can you do it? He's like, no, I just move a cup from one place, and I take it to another place, and I don't spill. <laughs> right? That guy with that background is who God picked, not some great general. So do not believe that it's mainly celebrity or some kind of qualifications. Listen, if you're going to get your thyroid out, yes, go see a doctor who's done that before, okay? But, but there are a lot of things like overcoming spiritual, moral, social, personal obstacles. People do that when they have the integrity and burden of God upon them. Does that make sense? Okay. Third is, can you accept that you've been planted where you've been planted, or are you just going to be mad about it? Right? Do you think Jesus liked where he was planted? Right? Think about this. Right? Nehemiah— Well, we'll get to that. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here. <clears throat> In your life right now, in terms of sharing God's burdens and overcoming obstacles, are you more likely to give up because of decadence or desperation? I know for me, it's definitely decadence. I've got the internet coming into my house in all kinds of ways, connected to screens. I've got multiple things to eat that are all filled with sugar. I have all kinds of recreation. I can afford a number of hobbies. I can distract myself in a thousand ways. I live in a decadent time in a decadent culture among a decadent people. Right? And if I'm going to not be an overcomer, it's very likely it's going to be because I'm choked and distracted in worldliness rather than so defeated by oppositional oppression that I can't even move. Do you understand? Now, that might not be true for you. It's, that's probably true for you. Even if someone's oppressing you, it's probably both in this moment in America. But you need to think about that because you might think, well, nobody's really oppressed me. I feel like I can overcome. Yeah, but are you actually overcoming in the spiritual and moral battles of your life in the formation of the kind of person you're going to be? Because that's your greatest battle, according to the scriptures. And that battle is always raging. Five, what do, you have as a, what do you have a burden for that isn't part of your present experience? Do you have a burden for anything? Any deep good, any hard thing, anything that isn't, anything that it really hurts you that it doesn't already exist? It doesn't have to be like just God. It might be just a true good. It might be part of the redemption mandate, bringing people closer to Jesus. Part of the creation mandate, bringing bring the earth and nature and environment under the subjection of what is good so that things can flourish. That might just be your job. What do you have a burden for? Do you have a burden for anything? If you don't have a burden for anything, you may be emotionally a little shallow, and it might mean that you should focus more of your attention on the things that build deeper emotional life in God and in yourself. Because it's worse not to have a burden. You know what I mean? Okay, can't say more about that right now. What should you do to experience the deep feelings of real piety? So if you're in that place where you're like, I don't know, those four things. What thoughts? Do you try to think God's thoughts or are you just thinking your own thoughts? What should you be professing? Telling yourself that you believe over and over again and building your confidence and agreement with it. What should you be confessing? What about you? Is it embarrassing and humiliating for you to admit about yourself? And what do you need to admit to God so that he can further align you with yourself? And in what ways do you put yourself in the posture of that thing? Let yourself cry. Put your face on the ground to show humility before God. Lift up your hands when you worship him because you adore him entirely. Like, do something with your physical posture and your tear ducts that goes along with whatever you're doing in a natural way. Does that make sense? Seven, are you not going—you are not going to be Nehemiah tomorrow. I already covered that, so I'm not going to say anything more about that. Just relax. And then, Jesus is a true and better Nehemiah. 
Do you realize this? So like, Nehemiah was in the citadel of Susa, right? Jesus was somewhere better. Do you understand? And you are further away than 600 miles. You were a memory of a possible—you were like a possible future in the mind of God, logically speaking. That's all you were. But Jesus saw the future <laughs> providential knowledge of you that didn't yet exist and the need that you would have. And chose in eternity past with God the Father to come from his great citadel to earth to do whatever it took to rebuild things redemptively so that you could be saved and that you could become an overcomer and so that you could flourish. That was his love for you, his desire for you. He is a truer and better and greater Nehemiah, and he has come to rebuild you and to save you and to lead you. In this story, you don't have to be Nehemiah. You can just be one of the people that when he says, look, we're building that wall, you go, okay, where are the rocks? You don't have to have all the answers. You do need to follow the person who's leading towards redemption. And in this book, it's Nehemiah. And in this world, it's Jesus, through his Spirit, leading us to the burden of God so that we can participate in it and become ourselves and to grow in the kind of depth we're going to have and to be burdened in the right way and to be fully alive. Okay, so come to church for 13 weeks and let's explore this together, okay? Start deciding on these first steps right now. Talk to God about what you are and aren't burdened with. Open yourself to him. And for the next few minutes, we're going to focus on a particular ritual in which we do that, where we confess and profess in communion. The only thing I'm going to say before we receive it is, one, the two cups are on top of each other. Take both cups so you get both the bread and the juice. Second, if you're not a believer in Jesus, this is an act of worshiping Jesus as God. So if you're not a believer in Jesus, then don't take it. Just let it pass by. That's all I'm going to say right now until I come up and we take it together. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to this ritual of communion where we take bread that represents Jesus' broken body and his shed blood, we recognize that in the work of rebuilding your greater temple and city, Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed. He was murdered and killed and shamed and destroyed to rebuild our lives, to rebuild the city of God and to create a future for your people and for all people. And we pray that right now you would burden us with that truth, that you would fill our hearts with confessing repentance, and that you would fill our minds with a desire to profess the truth of this until you return. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>